0: I can picture the boys over there, over there. making plenty of noise
1: over Welcome there. to episode 13 of Fred Talks. Once again, I'm Captain Joel Hood, Marine Corps representative in the Center for Law and Military Operations, that's CLAMO. This season is based on Mr. Bork's book, Judge Advocates in the Great War. Our discussion today is based on chapter 3, Judge Advocates in the American Expeditionary Forces. I'm here in the Nolan Reading Room with Mr. Fred Bork. Mr. Bork, I'm eager to dive into the AEF but first, I'd like to remind our listeners that they will find a link for the ebook of Judge Advocates in the Great War in the episode description. Without any further ado, let's dive in. Mr. Bork, last time you detailed the rapid expansion of the Judge Advocate General's Department, the JAG Department, to support the rapidly expanding U.S. Army, and the JAGs went where the AEF, the American Expeditionary Forces, went. What kind of organization did the JAGs have within the AEF? Who was in charge?
0: Okay, well, Captain Hood, thank you once again for doing this uh, podcast. And let me just, before I answer your question, let me start by reminding everyone who's listening that in 1916, we only had 16 or 17 judge advocates in the entire JAG department. And by the end of World War I, we had about 425, 430 judge advocates in the department with about 130 in France alone. So that is another story, and I think we talked about that last time, about how we grew the JAG Department. But to begin with, General Crowder, who was the Judge Advocate General during World War I, and General John J. Pershing, who took command of the American Expeditionary Force, they recognized that Pershing had to have his own Judge Advocate in France. It wasn't going to be possible to get legal advice from attorneys in Washington, D.C. So a, uh, a judge advocate by the name of uh, Walter Bethel, who had been a, a lieutenant colonel in 1917, he's given a star, he becomes a brigadier general, and he is in command, if you want to call it that, of the judge advocate branch in Paris, France. Actually, it was outside of Paris, uh, where Pershing had his headquarters. And he had, uh, he had 29 judge advocates on his staff and 39 enlisted men, what we would call legal clerks. But almost immediately, although Bethel might have liked to have had a centralized office, it just wasn't possible. Uh, communication in France was non-existent. Phone lines weren't working during combat mail wasn't working. Uh, If you wanted to communicate with units out in the field, you just couldn't do it unless you sent a dispatch rider. So the JAG department in the AEF was forced to decentralize. And although Bethel had his lawyers at Pershing's headquarters, the decision was that we would assign judge advocates to each one of the divisions and each one of the corps And each one of the armies in France. And so it was very decentralized.
1: You mentioned last episode that there were judge advocates not just in France, but as far off as Siberia. And I know that we'll cover that in a later episode. So we'll remain focused on France for now. My question now is typically when the U.S. service members deploy to another country, the U.S. signs a status of forces agreement with the host country. Was there anything like that between the U.S. and France in this case?
0: No, there, there wasn't. And you're exactly right. I mean, today, no matter where we are in the world, where we deploy, particularly if we have bases, uh, we have a SOFA, a Status of Forces Agreement. But all those SOFAs are really creatures that came about after the Second World War. And when we deployed to France in, uh, in 1917, and ultimately there were 2 million doughboys, Americans in uniform in France, no one really thought about whose law controlled. So if a soldier got in trouble in France, would the French want to prosecute him in their criminal courts, or would the French uh, allow us to court-martial the miscreant? And, and so it's somewhat surprising, uh, Captain Hood, that you might think that the first conflict of law's problem would come up with criminal jurisdiction. But in fact, that wasn't the case. The first problem that came up that would be solved by a SOFA today, I think, is that there were contract and fiscal law disputes. Americans would contract with French citizens for services or for goods. Then there'd be a dispute about the contract. And before you know it, the French citizen is suing the army in a French civil court. And it took a while for the French to accept that the AEF had sovereign immunity, as we would call it, Uh, but ultimately um, all these disputes were were, uh, handled outside the French civil court system. And then, as far as criminal law is concerned, the French from the very beginning pretty much recognized that it made no sense to prosecute soldiers or marines in French court. Why was that? Because the French saw that the Articles of War functioned pretty well, and they also saw that the army wasn't afraid to prosecute soldiers, and they got fairly stiff sentences. Ultimately, there was a sort of memorandum that was signed between the two countries that gave exclusive jurisdiction to the Americans under the Articles of War Uh, but initially it was just sort of informal.
1: So if I'm understanding you correctly, the the army maintained criminal jurisdiction over its own troops. Correct. And in France, was that true in Britain as well?
0: It was. And in fact, it was the same issue. Uh, there were thousands and thousands of Americans in in, uh, in England, uh, training and providing logistical support to the AEF, uh, liaisoning with their British counterparts. And, uh, in the case of the UK, the United Kingdom, we actually went into the British Parliament, and legislation was enacted giving the United States exclusive jurisdiction over all crimes committed by American
1: personnel. Now, you've mentioned court martial process, and that some of the the Bois received some stiff sentences. Would we recognize the court martial process they employed today?
0: Not, not really. Uh, In this particular period, lawyers, judge advocates, are really not involved at any level of courts martial. All prosecutors are line officers. Uh, Defense counsel are not legally qualified attorneys. They're usually line officers who are providing counsel for the accused. There's no such thing as a military judge. And because every division and corps commander and every commander of a separate brigade had the authority to convene a general court-martial. There were thousands and thousands of courts-martial, general courts-martial being convened. In fact, I think uh, in the book here, I talk about that at one sort of core-level or army-level organization, they tried 30,000 special courts and another two or 3,000 general courts. And again, there's no judge-advocate involvement until you get the record of trial, and then the judge advocates are reviewing it for legal sufficiency. But even then, because there's no appellate structure, once the convening authority takes action in the case, it's over. And that led to a lot of criticism, uh, justifiable criticism, that with so many courts, martial and with no appellate process, results were often arbitrary, capricious, and certainly no
1: uniformity. Well, I want to get to that in just a second, but I want to talk about General Pershing. Did he have any specific priorities when it came to military justice?
0: Well, Pershing was a lawyer, and he certainly could have been a member of the JAG department, but I think General Pershing felt he was more valuable as the commander of the AEF. Pershing was particularly worried and concerned about crimes committed against French citizens by Americans. He quite naturally, as did most American leaders, worried that if the French believed that they were being victimized by Americans, that morale would be hurt and that perhaps the French would not be supportive of Americans in their presence. So Pershing took a very hard line. If a soldier committed a rape uh, of a French woman or if a soldier stole from a French man or a Frenchman or a French woman or a citizen, Pershing was inclined to really go after that person and there would be a heavy sentence. And in fact, if the sentence was not heavy enough, Pershing
1: would criticize the court for failing to do its duty. Returning to what you said before about sometimes capricious and unfair sentences, I know there was controversy after the war about the military justice system, which I suppose is just proof that the more things change, the more they stay the same, as there has been ample criticism of the modern military justice system. But my question is, did the Army uniformly apply the Articles of War, or do you think it was, as you said, that there were wide disparities uh, between groups, between officer enlisted, between ethnic groups, etc.?
0: The Articles of War should have been applied uniformly. But as you can well imagine, commanders took different views of offenses. So one commander, for example, might be really, really inclined to go to a general court-martial for a drunkenness case or, or a mistreatment of an animal. Remember, this is an army where there are lots of horses and mules. And in fact, it's a criminal offense to mistreat an animal, particularly if it's government property. So you might have commanders who really took a hard line on some of these offenses, whereas another commander might say, well, you know, I'm not that worried about a soldier who's drunk on duty as long as it doesn't impact combat effectiveness. So it's, of course, today, commanders also take different views depending on the offense. But the difference back here in World War I is that there's no overarching appellate system that can take a look at cases and, for example, use its fact-finding power to get rid of unlawful command influence or, or disparate sentences. And again, I think a bigger problem is that because every single commander of a separate brigade can convene a general court, you're just going to have lots of cases. And remember, some of these commanders are just not that experienced. The Army had to grow its officer corps really, really fast. There were a lot of these so-called 90-day wonders. So maybe if you were an experienced Army officer who'd been on active duty for 10 years, maybe you're a West Point graduate, you're probably a little bit better attuned to what level of court should be used. But if you're one of these 90-day wonders, you probably are over-referring cases. And this, in fact, was a real problem.
1: So far, our conversation's been focused on judge advocates in the AF broadly, but I'd like to hone in on specific judge advocates now. You highlight Major Adam Peterson and Captain Austin Walden. Who
0: are they? So Adam Patterson was the very first African-American judge advocate in uh, our history, a prominent uh, attorney in Chicago who was very, very active in uh, Democratic Party politics. Patterson had been born in Mississippi in the 1870s. Uh, He'd moved to uh, Colorado, where I believe he got his law degree, Um, but in any case, he left Mississippi, and then he's in Chicago in the Illinois uh, area when World War I starts. He uh, starts out as an infantry officer, and when the 92nd Division, an all-African-American, all-black division, is organized and sent to France, uh, Pershing appoints Patterson as its judge advocate, and he's given the rank of major. So he is the very first black attorney in the Corps. Uh, He's joined at the division by another African American whose name is, yeah, Captain Walden. Walden is from, I believe, Georgia, uh, but he leaves, gets his law degree, I think, up in Michigan, and then he is the second. Uh, black judge advocate in our history, and he's the assistant judge advocate for the 92nd. So that's some history making there. Now, after World War I, there are no black judge advocates in the department as the Corps was once known until uh, World War II.
1: My last question, Mr. Bork. I often tell the the fresh-faced lieutenants in the uh, judge advocate officer basic course that the joint targeting cycle is the closest they'll ever Get to pulling the trigger. But judge advocates in the Great War actually saw combat. So at least some of them, right?
0: They did. And I think this all goes back to two factors. The first one was that the the Army expedition the American Expeditionary Force was always short of experienced officers. And many judge advocates in this era had served as line officers before coming into the JAG department. So they had perhaps served in the Philippine insurrection or maybe the Spanish-American War, uh, or they had some sort of a combat arms background. So if you're short a battalion commander or you're short a a regimental commander and you've got a judge advocate out there with combat experience who served as an infantry officer, you say, Hey, judge, how would you like to command this regiment? And that, in fact, happened with Colonel uh, Blanton Winship. Uh, Winship was given command of two regiments during World War I, uh, led them into combat, uh, and was decorated with the Distinguished Service Cross, second only to the Medal of Honor, as well as the Silver Star. Uh, There was another judge advocate by the name of Kincaid. He also led a battalion, I believe, in combat uh, and was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross as well. Wouldn't be unusual for a judge advocate serving at a division to say, hey, I'll be happy to carry the message from the headquarters here to the front line and might face some combat, be decorated for gallantry. So not that unusual. And, and what I, what I think you see here is that even though as a discipline, operational law does not exist, we still have judge advocates out there who are looking for ways to help commanders achieve mission success in ways that have nothing to do with the law.
1: Well that certainly is inspiring. It highlights for me the importance of the current Jag Corps motto, which is Soldier first, lawyer always. In episode 14, we will explore chapter 4 of Judge Advocates in the Great War, Judge Advocates in the American Expeditionary Forces North Russia and Siberia. <laughs> <speaking in Spanish>